So if you are familiar with this chapter, you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is, is a bit famous for, for being what they call the hall of faith. It's, uh, it's, the writer of Hebrews gives us this list of some of the Old Testament heroes of the faith who lived by faith. Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Rahab. Um, they give us these, just a little glimpse of their story and how they lived by faith. And then at the very end of, of the chapter... It's as if the writer of Hebrews gets really excited and he begins thinking of all of the other heroes that he hasn't had a chance to name yet. And he begins to describe them um, in this way. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. And what I would like for you to do is I think that there is something a little bit strange in these verses. And I'm going to ask you and give you a chance to, to talk about if there's anything that you find that is strange about these six or seven verses that I'm, that I'm reading. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back to their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them, and they wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Is there anything at all that you find strange about those seven or eight verses that I just read? Anything that felt odd? He said he didn't have time. Yeah, that's an interesting part of it. I kind of think that the book of Hebrews was probably a sermon. Maybe that's just me as a pastor reading that. But yeah, I don't have time to talk about all these people. What else? Anything else that you find a little bit strange? Yeah, that's pretty weird. Sheepskins and goatskins, that's that's pretty strange. What's that? He talks about the persecuted church. Yep. Yeah. Some of them appeared to be failures. Some of them didn't. And I think, Gary, that's what I'm after today. There are some of these people who live by faith, and the first three or four verses talk about them conquering kingdoms and administering justice and shutting the mouths of lions and escaping the sword and being victorious over their enemies. And then, in the very same breath, he talks about those who are flogged and put in prison. And wandering about destitute, half-clothed, and living in caves in the ground, and sawed in two. Without missing a beat, in the exact same breath, the writer of Hebrews talks about these men and women of faith, who some appeared to have great success, great influence over culture. People knew who they were and recognized them, and others were completely outcast and ostracized. I think that's a a remarkable thing. That there are some contexts where faithfulness to Jesus leads to triumph and cultural influence. And there's some contexts where faithfulness to Jesus leads to prison, being sawn into, and living in holes in the ground. 
And for the writer of Hebrews, there was no difference between these two groups. All of them were heroes because of their faithfulness to God. In the history of God's people, faithfulness has led to two things. Influence or persecution. Sometimes it has led the church into to, to growing and to have influence and to have political authority and positions of leadership in the world. But other times, faithfulness led to persecution. At some points in history, the, the vision uh, of life that the gospel offers and the vision of life that the church was living, it, it took root and it gained an audience, and that vision and that message was so good and so true and so beautiful that the world handed over influence to Christians, handed over authority to Christians. But in history, we see very clearly that there are other times when faithfulness leads to exactly the opposite, to being persecuted and ostracized, to wandering around half-naked, to being sawn in two and put into prison. And what's remarkable to me, and what I want to reflect on some today, is that the writer of Hebrews sees no difference between these two groups of people. He describes them both in the same breath. For these men and women, faithfulness was always the goal. Our sermons the next couple weeks is going to be called Faithfulness Always. Faithfulness Always. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, in whatever cultural moment we find ourselves in, wherever we are, we need to learn how to be prepared to be faithful always. I heard an illustration uh, from a sermon this week that I think will help us to understand this dynamic a little bit as we think about this in our own culture. It's the illustration of having home field advantage in sports. In sports, it's always easier to win when you're playing on your home field, and it's always harder to win when you are on the road. I have been a, a Detroit Tigers fan since I was five years old. In 1984, my family lived in southern Michigan. It was my very first year playing Little League. I already loved baseball. It was my first year playing Little League, and that same year, that first year I was playing Little League, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. They have not won since. It's been 40 years. They've not won since. Um, but that was, I was hooked. This is my first year playing Little League. I wore number one. I played second base. I was the leadoff hitter, just like my baseball hero, Lou Whitaker, who was the second baseman for the Detroit Tigers. So most mornings between April and September, one of the first things that I do in the morning is to see if the Tigers won the night before which usually means that I start off my day a little bit sad because they're usually not very good. But this year, the Tigers, they're not terrible. And that's good for us. They're not terrible. So far this year, at home, they have won 33 games and lost 26. They've won seven more games at home than they've lost. And actually, if they did that on the road when they were the visiting team, they would actually be competing for the playoffs. But on the road... They are 25 and 35. They've lost 10 more games than they've won. If you are a Big Ten basketball fan, you know how famously difficult it is to win in the Big Ten in basketball on the road. Statistically, the visiting team only wins one-third of the time in Big Ten basketball on the road. It's difficult to win when you are the visiting team. 
It's a lot more work to get there. The home team is used to how everything looks and how everything feels. And the crowd is hostile to you when you're the visiting team. The people and the fans are rooting against you and cheering for the other guys. In basketball, you know, when you're shooting the free throws, everyone's yelling and waving and making a lot of noise when you're the visiting team. But when the home team shoots their free throws, it's quiet so you can concentrate. You get my point. In sports, it's hard to win when you are on the road. It's good to have home field advantage. Christians no longer have home field advantage in America. If you are a serious follower of Jesus, you are part of the minority. You are part of the visiting team. The public is not in your favor anymore. There was a time when you were a serious Christian in America that you were the home team. Christians were quickly given a seat around the table of of influence in, in hospitals and in universities and in colleges. But that's not the case anymore. You are, we are the visiting team. Now, there are a thousand and one reasons for this. And sociologists and philosophers, they do their research and they ask why this has happened. There are others, theologians and pastor types like myself, that debate back and forth about whether this is a good thing or whether this is a bad thing to be on the visiting team. But my point today is not to evaluate why this has happened. It's not to make an argument today about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing for the church or for our country. I think both of those have dangers in them, being the home team and the visiting team. I just simply want to start today by telling you that it's true. That we have lost home field advantage. That for the most part, it's it's no longer beneficial for you financially or for your social status or for your career to be a sincere, earnest follower of Jesus. And increasingly so, being a true follower of Jesus actually can bring resistance. It's going against the grain. It's swimming against the stream. It's being on the visiting team. Whatever metaphor works for you, take it and grab it because it's the truth. And and we can lament that. We can lament the fact that we've lost home field advantage, but we do have to accept the fact if we're going to be faithful to Jesus in this cultural moment that we're in. Agree or disagree? Anybody disagree? It's okay if you do. (laughs) Nobody's going to say disagree to the pastor as he's standing up there with the microphone, right? But anyway, (laughs) I think most of us have a sense that this is true. And again, some of us may think this is a really good thing and gives us opportunities to do different kind of ministry and to be not so passive and to be active. And some people think it's a bad thing and we see our culture losing and going a certain direction and we we lament that. And and either way, wherever you are... um, We just need to admit that it's true if we're going to live faithfully right now. I want to think for a minute about the life of the life of Daniel. Daniel was alive at a difficult time to be a Jew. It was a time when the Jewish people literally lost home field advantage. Their entire home was taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered the Jewish people, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and the Babylonians took some of the best and the brightest Jewish young men, and they put them in service to the king. And Daniel was one of these young men. 
And what we see in Daniel's life is that faithfulness to God in his own lifetime at times led him to have influence and at other times led him to be persecuted. Because of his faithfulness to God, there were times when he found himself in a place of influence where the king would seek out Daniel and ask his advice because he had shown himself to be a man of integrity and a man of wisdom. But there was at least one other time, probably other times, when Daniel, because of his faithfulness to God, was like thrown into the lion's den. You remember that story, right? Daniel, because of his faithfulness to God, was persecuted. In Daniel's own lifetime, the context changed. The kings even changed. The empires changed all around him. But Daniel didn't change. He remained faithful to God. Faithfulness to God was his priority. And for Daniel, if faithfulness to God meant cultural influence, great. If that meant being thrown to the lions, so be it. I'm going to be faithful to God. That was Daniel's first Priority, And I suggest to you that it is our priority, too. Our calling is faithfulness always. Faithfulness always. Now, that's a really easy thing to say. It's not a controversial thing to say here at this church that we should be faithful to Jesus always. It seems obvious. But in a culture where we once had home field advantage, it's tempting to make regaining home field advantage our goal rather than faithfulness to Jesus. In our disappointment, our frustration, our anger, we can be tempted to do whatever we can to regain power and influence. And that might happen. If we are faithful to Jesus, that might be gained back in some way, but it can't be our goal. Faithfulness to Jesus must always remain our goal. Unwavering obedience to Jesus. We're also not called to seek persecution. And there are some people who actually do that too in some strange ways. It's much less popular, but there are some people who do that too. But we're not called to seek persecution. Both persecution and cultural influence are results of faithfulness. Persecution and cultural influence are both results of faithfulness depending on the cultural moment, depending on the context that, they, that Christians are in. They are not the goal. They are not the objectives of the church. They are the products, the results of faithfulness. And Hebrews 11 tells us that persecution and cultural influence were the products of faithful lives going back for thousands and thousands of years of God's people. And so, as we begin today, what I'm saying to start is to remind us that, um, that this home field advantage in America has been lost, and that we need to reflect on how to remain faithful to Jesus always. We need to ask the question, how do we remain faithful when we are on the visiting team, when we don't have home field advantage any longer? How do we remain faithful? There's a a few verses in the book of Colossians that I want to sit with this week and next week as we think about this question. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Paul writes this to a group of people who were definitely on the visiting team, who were in the minority in their city, 
um, in their place and that they were actually in the minority both as, as Christians in the Jewish culture and they were also um, the visiting team as Christians in the Roman Empire. So they're really the minority in, in two different directions. And this is what he says to them. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, this is Colossians 2 verse 6, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it. Pay attention. Make sure that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. These verses, I hope, are going to be helpful to us the next couple of weeks as we consider what it means to live faithfully to Jesus when we're not the home team anymore. Today, we're going to look at the first part of this, which is the importance of having a deep and rooted spiritual life. And then next week, we're going to look at the second half of this passage, which talks about how we are to relate to the culture around us. So this week, talk about our own inner spiritual life and making sure that we are deeply rooted in Christ. And next week, we'll talk about the ways that we are called to interact and engage with the world around us. But I want to begin today with an, with an illustration, and I need, I need a volunteer. Come on, somebody. I see Hunter out there. Come on up, Hunter. Need your help. All right. So, Hunter, I'm going to give you a rubber band, okay? And I want, to pretend, I want you to pretend that this is your life. This cup is your life. And Hunter, all I want you to do is just knock down that cup with that rubber band. No, with the rubber band. Come on. It's not that easy. Not that easy, all right? You can do it. All right, let's try it again. You can just shoot it, or you can shoot the rubber band. There you go. There you go. All right, now, now what I'm going to do, I saw this illustration at family camp last week, by the way. So that's at Gold Lake family camp. It was a great time. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to give your life a root, a root. Now, try to sh shoot it over. Oh, you can't do it, right? Because it has a root. Thanks, Hunter. You can keep that. <laughs> I think this is a great illustration. We did this with our kids. They had this little brown bag Bible study that they gave to us. They gave this illustration, and all of us were like, that's really helpful, a really helpful image. Paul gives us here an image of a tree that's rooted. And then we need to be a people who are rooted in Christ if we're going to live in a culture that's hostile to faithfulness. If we're going to win while we're on the road, we need to be very careful to be sure that our lives are rooted in Christ. Are you rooted in Christ or in someone or something else, or are you living a rootless life? And how do we get rooted and stay rooted in Christ? 
What I want to do today is to ask you to consider your everyday life. Just simply to think about the routines of your day. When you wake up in the morning, what's the very first thing that you do? And then after that, and then after that, and how do you spend your lunch hour? And what do you do right before you go to bed? Just consider for a minute your routines. What's going to happen on Monday morning? What's most likely, if you can stay consistent with your routine, what are you going to do on Tuesday evening or Wednesday evening or Thursday evening? What receives your time and your attention? Think about your everyday life. What's feeding you? What information are you putting into your minds? What, what things are you looking at that stirs up desires in your heart? Being rooted in Christ does not happen by going to retreats and spiritual conferences and seeking out those mountaintop experiences. All of those have an important role to play in our lives. They've had an important role to play in my life. But being rooted in Christ is something very, very different from those kinds of experiences. Being rooted in Christ is about our everyday, normal, mundane life being lived together with him. Being rooted in Christ is about our everyday, normal, mundane life being lived together with him. Here's the truth. Every moment of every day, your heart, your soul, your inner life is being shaped and molded and conformed in one way or another. Every day. Your heart is always being formed by the things that you do, by the things that you hear, by the things that you see, by the people that you're with, for better or for worse. And so one of the things that we must decide to do if we are going to be a people who are rooted in Christ is to be intentional about what we are doing with our bodies and what we are doing with our time and with our energy. And so all of you have some routine in your life. What's the first thing that you do when you get up? Eat, eat breakfast, drink coffee, check ba Facebook, see if the Tigers won, pray, check Instagram. What is the first thing that you do? And consider and ask yourself, how is that shaping and forming my inner life, my soul? Is this first thing that I do in the morning, is it making me more rooted in Christ or rooted in something else? If every evening of your week, before you go to bed, is spent watching TV, your spiritual life, your, your soul, your inner life is being shaped for better or for worse, most likely for worse, by that practice. That's where you're putting your roots. If every morning the first thing you do is, is check your phone or your email, then your soul, your inner life is being shaped for better or for worse by that practice, by that thing that you're doing with your, your body, by that routine. If every week you take a day of rest, if you pause every single week for a day and commit to pausing from your work and for your efforts and to take time to enjoy with God and with family, that is a practice that's shaping you. The daily and weekly practices that you engage in are the roots of your spiritual life. And so what kind of soil are you putting your roots into? 
It's in your everyday life where you are choosing where to put down your roots, where you are choosing what's going to nourish your life. So I just want to say again, your spiritual life, your inner life is not primarily shaped by once a year mountaintop experiences or even by the hour and a half that we spend here on Sunday mornings, as important and valuable as those times are. Your life is shaped by the daily and weekly rhythms of your life. And it is there in the context of your everyday life where you are being formed spiritually for good or for bad. Whether you're being rooted in Christ or whether you're living a life that you're just going to be knocked over because you have no root, because you have nothing solid. Your everyday life is where you're putting down your roots. And so if we're going to live and to stand in a culture that's hostile to faithfulness, we must be rooted in Christ. And so I want to talk about a few practices today about how to be rooted in Christ. The first is this. Commit yourself to uncomplicated obedience to Jesus. Uncomplicated obedience to Jesus. Paul begins this passage by saying, Just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a bit of a churchy word for us. We kind of only use that, at least in American English. We only use the word Lord when we're talking about churchy things. But for them, Lord was a very, they understood what Lord meant. It meant Caesar. If you were a slave, it meant your master. It's the one who you submit to. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our king. He is the one that we submit to always, and we stay rooted in him by practicing uncomplicated obedience to him. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, this is what Jesus says about how to remain in him. John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain Remain rooted. This similar idea here. He's just been talking about the, the vine and the branches. Remain in me. Remain rooted in me. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. One of the ways that we remain in his love, one of the ways that we remain rooted in Christ, is to obey his commands. We learn how to obey him. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, how does Jesus end the Sermon on the Mount? What's the illustration that he gives at the end? Anybody remember? Yeah, the two different houses, one built on the sand and one built on the rock. At the end of the sermon, he says that there are, are some people who hear his words and who do not put them into practice, and they're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand— but there are wise people who hear Jesus' words and who put them into practice, and he describes them as a man who built his house on the rock. In other words, a person who's built their life in a way that's rooted, secure, like the cup with the root in it. It's secure, so when the storms come, that house will stay. We stay rooted in him by learning obedience to him. And I've said here, uncomplicated obedience to him. 
Because I think that sometimes we make obedience to Jesus really, really complicated. And I just want to say that it doesn't have to be. If somebody came, comes in here today and says, you know, I think I'm really going to start obeying all of the words of Jesus, I think some of us might be a little bit surprised, maybe a little bit concerned. What's, what's that going to mean for this person? Or, or maybe some people might start saying, well, you can't earn your salvation, right, by works. Or they might start worrying about works righteousness in this person. Some people might even ask, is it even possible to obey Jesus? There are some uh, theologians and biblical scholars say that the whole Sermon on the Mount really wasn't told to us so that we should obey it, but just to help us to understand how impossible it is to obey Jesus so that we will, you know, turn to God's grace. And I just say, bleck all that. I don't know a word I just said. I think it was bleck. Bad. It's not. <laughs> Uncomplicated obedience to Jesus. Are we going to do that perfectly all of the time, 24 hours a day? No, we're not. But you can obey him today. You can obey him today more than you did yesterday. You can pay attention to the things that he says, and with God's help, you can learn to obey them. So I would encourage you to just start with the Sermon on the Mount and take one little teaching from the Sermon on the Mount and learn from Jesus how to obey it. Not out of guilt, not out of earning righteousness, but because you believe that this is how I stay rooted in him. This is how I stay attached to him, by being obedient to him, because he knows how I need to live my life in a way that will help me to stand in a culture that's hostile to me. So, for example, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that when you give to the needy, do it in such a way that no one notices. Can you do that? Is it possible for you to do that? It is. It's possible for you to give money to someone in need or to give money to the church with an attitude that no one notices and that this is just between me and God. So you can take that teaching that Jesus gives to you and say, I'm going to commit myself, commit my life with the help of God's spirit to give in that way. Because that's the way that Jesus says that I should do it. And then do it again and again and again. And begin to see what happens in your own heart when you stay rooted in Jesus by being obedient to him in that way. Or another time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't take any oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Learn, what does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean by making sure that my words are simple? And that I become a person who does the things that I say that I'm going to do and doesn't do the things that I say that I'm not going to do. But a person who lives that way. Learn what that means. Stop trying to, to use your words to manipulate and control people, but simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Very recently, just as a, as a personal example, many of you know that we've been building an addition on the back of our house, and um, it's been an awful experience. It's just been terrible. Like, it started in March of 2020, and it's still not finished. Okay. It's been bad. It's been really bad. And a few weeks ago, we kind of came to this point where things were becoming so frustrating with our contractor that you know, we were beginning to lose sleep. You know, we were just tossing and turning at 2 o'clock, like, what do we do? What do we do about these things? And as you know, I've been listening a lot to my teacher, Dallas Willard, and um, he just, he talked about how sometimes 
in life, Jesus just calls us to turn the other cheek. Or to, if somebody takes your coat, just give them the other one too. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but there was a decision that we had to make where we just decided, let's just be wronged in this whole situation. And let's move on and bless them. And so we just moved on. We just kind of took it. And in our exchange over email and text, just gave them a word of blessing. We have slept fine ever since. Because there are some things that Jesus knows about life that we don't. We want to fight for our rights all of the time. And I'm not saying that, you know, you can't fight for justice for yourself and that kind of thing. I'm not saying that. But for our moment in this life, in this particular moment for Katie and I, following Jesus meant this certain kind of thing that actually set us free rather than gritting our teeth and making sure that everything happened in the way that we wanted it to and that was fair for us. See, what Jesus says in John 15, after he says to remain in my love by obeying my commands, he says this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. He gives us his commands. John, in his letter, says not to be burdensome to us, but because he knows that his way for us is the way of joy. It is the way that will bring true joy in our lives. His commands are for our good, and being obedient to Jesus is what makes us rooted people in the world. It teaches us that we can trust him, that when we obey him, we learn to live in the way that he calls us to live, that there's some sleepless nights that we can avoid. There's some anxiety and anger and frustration that we can avoid. There's some worry that we can avoid if we will commit ourselves to obedience to him. So I want to say uncomplicated obedience to Jesus. I'm not talking about works righteousness. I know all of the theological issues there. If you want to talk about that, we can. But don't make it complicated. Open up the Sermon on the Mount. Find a portion or two and commit yourself to learning how to be obedient to that part. When you feel that God, that Jesus has shaped you in that area, move on to the next part and ask the Spirit to help you with that next thing too. Does that make sense? Sometimes we just complicate the whole thing. And Jesus says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are rooted people. They're people who built their house on the rock. So uncomplicated obedience to Jesus is one of the ways that we stay rooted in him. Second, to find your way with scripture and prayer. Scripture is God's word to us. Prayer is the gift that we've been given by God to talk and to interact with him. And both of these practices are essential for staying rooted in him in a world that is hostile to faithfulness. If we do not find nourishment from the scriptures and from prayer, we will be rootless people. We will be knocked over very easily if we do not find our way with scripture and prayer. What, I mean, what do I mean by finding your way? Well, I think that in our evangelical subculture, we have this particular idea about a quiet time. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know, I don't know where the pressure came from, but it basically looks like this. And maybe it's just me. You can tell me if it's just me. But where what Bible study and prayer must look like is that it must happen in the morning. It must happen with a cup of coffee. It must happen with a journal. 
And it's about 20 minutes of Bible reading and then 20 minutes of prayer, and then you move on with your day, and that's your daily quiet time. Is that kind of in your head what you think about when you think about Scripture and prayer time? Minus the coffee? Okay, whatever, you know. That is a, that is a, that is a great way to spend time in Scripture and prayer. And it's a way that I have done at different points of my life in ways that have been exciting and nourishing and where I've grown. And other times it just hasn't worked for me. And I know that there are a lot of you, I've talked with dozens of you, where that just doesn't work for you. And so you kind of heap, heap this load of guilt on yourself because your time in the scriptures, your prayer time, doesn't look like that ideal that we have set up for you. And so what I want to suggest to you is to find your way with scripture and with prayer. That maybe the scripture for you is, rather than listening to the radio in the morning on the way to work, that it's, it's listening to the scriptures. Or maybe it's taking a very short part and, and just meditating on it um, throughout the week, just taking one verse and meditating on it throughout the week. Maybe it's um, one day a week, you're just going to take an hour and you're just going to read all of the gospel or all of you know, some book and really dive into it one day a week. What is your way with scripture and prayer? It doesn't have to be this ideal that we've kind of set up for you. And if that doesn't work for you, find your way with scripture and with prayer. Does that make sense? And if you want to talk together about what your way might be, I'd be glad to sit down and talk with you about that. I don't always have any clear answers for you, but I will certainly be glad to talk with you about that. Find your way with Scripture and with prayer. Third is stay connected to God's people. You don't have to be a lone, solitary tree out in the middle of the field fighting the wind and the storms all by yourself you get to be a part of an orchard of a whole bunch of God's people who are committing themselves to stay rooted in Christ and bearing a particular kind of fruit together. And this is some of what Simps talked about in his sermons on Philemon. And <laughs> but he talked about this idea we don't have to be by ourselves. We are never called to be Christians by ourselves. We are never called to be people who stay rooted by ourselves. We need each other. And this, again, is what small groups are about. If you're not a part of a small group, we would encourage you uh, to, to join one this year, to be a part of a group that's not making you feel as if you're a Christian all by yourself, all alone, trying to stand your ground as, as, as best as you can by yourself as the storms come. You can be a part of a whole orchard of people who are rooting themselves in Christ and seeking to bear a particular kind of fruit together. So those are three practices that I think are essential for us to stay rooted in Christ in a hostile culture, in a culture where that is hostile to our faithfulness to Jesus, to commit ourselves to uncomplicated obedience to Jesus, to find each of our way with scripture and prayer, and to stay connected to God's people. I think this is the first step for us as we consider what it means for our our own lives and our hearts um, to be rooted in Christ. So I'd just like to take a minute to be quiet and for you to ask God, what step do you need to take this week to stay rooted in Christ? Whether it be one of these three or maybe something else that God brings to your attention, something that God is calling you to do to put into practice this week to stay rooted in him. Let's take a minute to be silent and to ask the Lord that, and then I will pray for us.
God in heaven, I, I thank you that you are real, that you're alive, that you, that you love us and that you call us to live our lives together with you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today in whatever way that you may be speaking to them today about a step to dig their roots more deeply into you. Lord, we, we need your help to do that. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own courage or gritting our teeth. So we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to come and to fill us and to empower us to take this step and to put into practice um, whatever the next thing is that you're calling us to do. Pray that we would not get overwhelmed with all of the different things that Pastor Ryan has talked about today. I pray that we would just listen to your voice and to take the next step in becoming more deeply rooted in you. In Christ's name, amen.